Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May 2012 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here. This month we're discussing a review article in the May issue and it's very much uh, an under-recognised problem in neurology. The review is entitled The Neurology of Inherited Glycosylation Disorders. And to find out more, earlier I spoke to one of the authors of that review, Professor Hudson Fries, from the Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute in La Jolla, California, in the United States. Professor Fries, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. Briefly explain what disorders of glycosylation are. Well, I think maybe the first thing to start with is what is glycosylation? And that's a biological process that occurs in all cells, and it's the uh, biosynthesis and addition of sugar chains, fairly complex sugar chains, uh, to proteins. And so there are probably about um, several hundred different genes that are involved in this, and any mutation in one of those genes that affects either the construction or the addition of those sugar chains onto to proteins or to lipids could be considered a glycosylation disorder. And so the kinds of, of molecules that people may be familiar with uh, would be any serum glycoprotein receptors, receptors on all cell surfaces, extracellular matrix proteins, things like chondroitin sulfate, heparin sulfate, any of the receptors that are so important in cell-cell communication and in neurology are going to be glycosylated. Therefore, any mutation in the manufacture of those kinds of sugar chains is going to be uh, a risk factor for uh, a number of different uh, systems. And, of course, it's not only the, the neurological system, but also other systems that are affected. Although the disorders of glycosylation are rare, there have been 70 genetic disorders identified mainly in the past 15 years. Do you see this as an area of expansion in terms of our knowledge, in terms of more actually genetic-based um, disorders. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tell I us sure about that. I'm, I'm in La Jolla, and so there are a lot of people who surf here, and I think we're just starting to get onto the crest of the wave here for a good long ride. Even though there are 70 disorders, if you, if you step back and look at the number of inherited disorders, there are probably about 7,000. 3,500 of those have been found with, uh, with a specific genetic cause. That leaves another 3,500 to go. We know that about probably a minimum of 2% of the genome is involved in encoding those glycosylation machinery proteins. If you do the math, that leaves us with at least another 70 to go with the uh, rapid uh, progress in whole exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing as, as a part of uh, patients' uh, records. This is going to enable the, the discovery of lots more of these genes, and so I think we're at the crest of the wave here. And let's focus now, if you like, on the neurological aspects of these disorders. How would you describe, essentially, the neurological characteristics of these glycosylation disorders? Most of the glycosylation disorders have a neurological component in them. And even though there are a number of, of different kinds of glycans and different cell types, the ones that appear to be most impacted are those that affect the nervous system. So typically, probably the most common feature is intellectual disability. And that can be highly variable. There are, I think, maybe two patients who are adults and who live on their own. But for the most part, they're, they're going to not be that fortunate. Very often, they have seizures. There are brain, brain structural abnormalities. And the one that, that comes to mind most frequently is cerebellar hypoplasia. It's actually cerebellar atrophy, I think, is, is a more precise term. 
thin corpus callosum. You'll have uh, demyelination occur in some instances. And certainly in the children, most of them are going to be hypotonic. They're ocular problems. In fact, in the advanced stages, uh, very many of the patients will have retinitis pigmentosa. If you think about, for instance, let's go back to the cerebellar hypoplasia or atrophy. If you take a, let's say, a group of, I think, There was a study done with 84 children with global cerebellar atrophy, and 21 of those had a deficiency in a very specific type of glycosylation in comparison to, let's say, only 18 that had respiratory uh, chain defects. So you can see this is uh, on par with a lot of the the more frequent kinds of things uh, that we would attribute to complex uh, neurological uh, deficiencies. Really, these glycosylation disorders can clearly have profound effects. So presumably, and you do mention this in the review, early diagnosis, well, awareness, apart from anything else, as well as (laughs) is crucial. And and obviously, just a step on from that, early diagnosis. How is diagnosis done? And what therapies are currently available for these glycosylation disorders? That's a good question. And I'm thoroughly convinced that the number of cases and the number of types of different glycosylation disorders is uh, far underestimated. And I think part of the reason, you know, is what you brought up at the very beginning, that this is the the first time you may have actually heard about these glycosylation disorders. And I think that that's not, that's not uncommon. Talking about and teaching glycosylation is not uh, part of the normal medical school curriculum. A lot of basic scientists aren't even educated in, in glycobiology, which is the, the term we use for looking at glycosylation. So physicians and scientists alike are not accustomed to thinking of glycosylation as a deficiency. There's not an orientation in in that same way as, as there might be to other things that are better established. So it's kind of viewed as a metabolic disorder then and not tied in within the specialty of neurology, is that? that that's right. That's right. But if, but if I look back through where most of the cases that I've been familiar with have come from, far and away, it's from neurologists contacting me. There may be a, a GI specialist who will uh, have patients because of failure to thrive, but typically it's going to be almost all neurological. So the pediatric neurologist is going to see a lot of these kids, and I'm going to focus now just on the end-linked types of glycosylation, and that is highlighted in the article because there are about 30 different kinds of these disorders that can all be detected with a single test, and that test is simply analyzing the glycosylation status of transferrin. Now, there's nothing especially unique about transferrin. It's serum glycoprotein made by the liver, but it seems to be extraordinarily sensitive to underglycosylation. So even isoelectric focusing, you can run this in your garage, is a viable technique to be able to detect these sort of disorders. A better way, actually, is to use electrospray ionization mass spectrometry where the entire transferrin molecule is, is analyzed. And this is done, to my knowledge at least, the, uh, probably the best place is uh, the Mayo Clinic because they have uh, lots and lots of experience of doing this. And what that does is to allow you to dissect more precisely the kind of, of glycosylation disorder that might be. Now, having said that, the problem is that that just tells you that there's something amiss with glycosylation. It doesn't tell you the gene, and it doesn't suggest any therapies for it. My 
suggestion is that there would be much, much more analysis of transferrin as soon as any patient would present with any of the kind of symptoms described in, in the article, that that's one of the first things that, that is done. And part of the reason that this is important is that if you actually look at the frequency of abnormal transferrins that can be attributed probably to glycosylation disorders because there are a few false positives, there are, there are not very many. If you look at that, the hit rate is about three times higher between six months and 18 months of age. So there may be a window when people are especially sensitive to making underglycosylated transferrin. The hit rate there, that at least in the Mayo Clinic study, was about 10%. So there's a huge number of these patients that are out there. In terms of therapy, there are very few therapies available. The one therapy that uh, seems to work and to work very well works on a non-neurological type called CDG, congenital disorder of glycosylation 1B. And that is uh, typically characterized by uh, hypoglycemia, protein-losing enteropathy, and uh, coagulopathy, but not uh, intellectual deficiencies or uh, obvious neurological problems. Sometimes the hypoglycemia can, can result in, in seizures, but that's, of course, of a different sort. And in that instance, just simply giving the sugar, the simple sugar mannose, is enough to essentially reverse almost all the symptoms of the disease. Uh, liver fibrosis is not reversible, but all the other uh, sort of renewable aspects are. So this is the same therapy has been tried on the most common type of CDG called CDG1A. And that's, there's a good chunk of the article that's devoted to analysis of these patients because there are probably about 800 of these patients known worldwide. And that deficiency is in phosphomanomutase. That's an enzyme on the metabolic chart that's right next door, and so there was hope that you could treat those patients with uh, mannose as well. So old studies about 15 years ago tried it on a few patients, and they weren't successful. However, there is a new kind of perspective that's beginning to emerge that if you can simply redirect some of the mannose that could be taken in just in the, in the uh, supplement to the diet, that that might be enough to shift in the direction of getting better glycosylation. And there's a few embryonic studies, and I don't mean in embryos, I mean uh, early, early stage, stage studies, studies yeah. early, early stage studies that are suggesting that a few patients have been followed for a few years, being placed on mannose, and there seem to be at least some biochemical and perhaps even clinical improvements. I don't want to emphasize that too much, but I think we need to go back and take a look at that because there is the possibility that very subtle and simple manipulations of the metabolic flux of sugars going through the pathway might be able to treat some of these disorders. Our time is nearly up, but in, in summary, how would you spell out, if you like, the priorities, both in terms of research that's needed um, for the future, but also clinical management? It sounds like, sounds like we have a very simple therapeutic option here for, that could help a lot of people. The ones that benefit from it, there's only maybe 20 of those so far. The other hopes for uh, giving mannose and perhaps together with other molecules that might uh, encourage that flux. I think that's where some of the research ought to go. We ought to find more molecules that will enable that flux to go. Of course, gene replacement, gene therapy will be an option going down. The problem is, of course, that won't work very well in the brain, and every cell needs to get that because glycosylation is cell autonomous. To me, the most important thing is going to be greater 
awareness, more testing using transferrin, especially for these types that will be detected that way. And this will fit in as part of whole exome sequencing. Once we understand some of that and some of those genes that are involved, we're going to discover new types. We'll find then the basic biologist, the glycobiologist empowered to now go look for new kinds of therapies that will be able to treat those disorders. And I think there can be a bright future there. In terms of management of the patients, I think most of the kind of care, one, the, the diagnosis certainly puts parents' uh, minds at ease knowing that they can be part of a greater group knowing what the glycosylation disorder is. But I think the palliative care, speech therapy, therapy for caring within the educational system, I think that can all work well because there are many CDG patients have really quite uh, good integration into uh, major school systems, and I think that is really important, and they'll have a better quality of life for that. Professor Hudson Fries, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. Well, thank you, Richard. I, I appreciate the opportunity. And thank you all for listening. See you next time.